Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher, Kevin Connor. For more information, visit kevinconnor.org. Right, I'd like you to turn to uh, two or three passages of Scripture tonight for our teaching session. Let's, uh, we're going to look at Genesis uh, chapter 17 tonight for a few thoughts. So before we, uh, before we go to that chapter, that, that'll be the chapter that's going to be uh, the area of our study. But I'd like you to turn over to a couple of New Testament passages that relate to this. First of all, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 7. And uh, we'll take the same approach that we did last week. We'll real, uh, read several passages of Scripture, uh, first of all, and then in our uh, teaching session, we'll weave it together in our uh, teaching context here. All right, Acts chapter 7, and uh, we'll just read from verse, uh, verse 4. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon, and from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in the strange land, and they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And verse 8 is the one that I want you to notice. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. All right, the thing we're going to be looking at uh, tonight is a few thoughts on the covenant of circumcision. Okay, now let's turn over to another important passage in, uh, in the epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 4. God gave to Abraham the covenant of circumcision. All right, Romans chapter 4. And we'll take from verse uh, 9, Romans chapter 4, verse 9. And verse 9, Romans 4, verse 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in, uncir in circumcision or in uncircumcision? not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet being uncircumcised, for the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. All right, now, uh, you'll just have to sort of bear with me for a little moment here as we sort of lay up, you know, sort of parts of the puzzle here, and then we'll bring it together by the time we're through. Now, I want you to notice here what Paul is doing in Romans 4 before we go back to the uh, chapter, another, another passage here, and then back to Genesis. He's taking the two stages of Abraham's life to prove a very vital point that uh, we'll prove as, uh, as uh, we sort of develop in our teaching tonight. First of all, he takes Abraham's experience in uncircumcision. Well, let's just pick this up. For instance, in verse 3, what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Verse 9, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision, 
only or upon the uncircumcision. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? The answer is not in circumcision but in uncircumcision. Now he's dividing Abraham's life up and, and this thing is so loaded with implications as we'll see as we go through. He takes the two stages of Abraham's life, the two uh, the, the central point that we're going to be looking at tonight. First of all, Abraham in uncircumcision. In other words, if you please, we might say when Abraham was Gentilized. And very significantly, that we can't uh, develop here because of our time, the chapters that deal with Abraham's life are chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And we've been covering these things and so I can't pick it up again although I'd like to, but his call, his separation from Lot, Melchizedek, bread and wine and tithes when he was Gentilized when he's in a state of uncircumcision. Now we'll see the significance of it if we get through here tonight. Then we come to this pivotal chapter that we're going to look at tonight, chapter 17, where he receives the covenant of circumcision. Now he is a covenant man, he's in covenant relationship with God, but we're talking about the seal, the seal of the covenant. And we talk about, and we're throwing this in in other times, about the sealing of the 144,000. And what is the seal of God today? Why is God sealing his people? What is this seal? Every covenant has its particular seal. And so we're talking about the seal, the sign of the covenant of circumcision. So Paul, as I said, he's taking up two phases of Abraham's life as the father of all who believe. When he was in uncircumcision, Gentilized, we might say, or when he was in circumcision. And the chapters that are covered in this stage of Abraham's life is from chapter 18, 19, uh, 20, etc., right through to, I think it's about 25. And we dealt with some of these chapters in relation to his intercession, etc. So here Paul, by revelation of the Holy Spirit, is taking up the two stages of Abraham's life in uncircumcision, as I said, when we see the implications of his call, the separation from Lot, the Melchizedek priesthood, the bread and the wine, the communion, all in the book of Hebrews, when he's uncircumcision, what priesthood is involved there? What priesthood did the Gentiles come in, uh, in under? See, not the Aaronic priesthood, which belongs to the circumcision, but to the Melchizedek priesthood, which belongs to the uncircumcision. So this thing, as you see, is just loaded with, uh, with what Paul gets in Revelation here. All right, so... Uh, the first stage in uncircumcision and circumcision. Now, while we're on it, so we don't uh, lose the thought later on. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal. Sign and seal. The sign, these signs shall follow them that believe. He didn't receive it so he could believe. He received it because he was already a believer. He's already a believer in uncircumcision. Right? So he received the sign and the seal, a sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised when he was Gentilized. What for? That he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised or Gentiles or Jews. We'll use it just in a broad sense here. So the Jews, the, uh, the circumcision, the Gentiles, the uncircumcision. Now let's uh, go over to a passage in, in Ephesians, then we'll come back to a passage in Romans, and then we'll get back to Genesis. Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, we'll just take verse 11. 
just to see how Paul uses these two words that I've put up here. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. So Paul is taking Abraham's experience in uncircumcision to be symbolic and his experience in uncircumcision when he believed God to be symbolic of the Gentiles who are the uncircumcision believing God. Right? Is that right? Is that right? Are you there? Right. See, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands and the circumcision referring to the Jews. See? So he's go back to Abraham's experience in uncircumcision and circumcision and he says, Abraham, because he believed God in uncircumcision and he received the sign and seal of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness, the faith righteousness he already had uh, in uncircumcision, he becomes the father of all who believe, whether they're Gentiles or Jews, or uncircumcision or circumcision. That's what he's doing. Okay, everybody see that? All right, now we'll go back to uh, one more passage in Romans, and then uh, back to Genesis chapter 17. Romans chapter 2. And verse uh, 24 we'll take. Romans 2, verse 24 to 29. For the name of God, just make a little mental note of it, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if you be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. In other words, if you as a Jew, you were circumcision in the flesh and you break the law, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You as a Jew become Gentilized in the mind of God. See what we're saying? So where is the true Jew today? See? A Jew who rejects Jesus Christ and yet may be circumcised in the flesh because he breaks God's law he becomes uncircumcision, Gentilized. And continue. The uh, converse is true too. Verse 26. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? So the converse is true. If a Jew who, who is, claims to be the circumcision violates the law of God, then he becomes uncircumcision, Gentilized. But if a Gentile is uncircumcised, keeps the law of God, he becomes the circumcision. Right. So that makes us the true Jew. Well, let's continue. This is written by a Jew. Not by Kevin Connor. And uh, verse 27, Shall not uncircumcision which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise... He's playing on the word Jew because Jew is a corruption of Judah. What does Judah mean? See, see, he's not a Jew which is one outwardly whose praise is not of men, Judah, Jew, but whose praise is of God. Okay, now let's go back to Genesis 17. I just uh, needed to lay that out, show you at least the direction we are heading. All right, we, uh, you'll just have to sort of glance your eyes over the chapter and if you're taking down notes, just take down the whole chapter. 
and we'll just pick out the high spots and try and watch this time. Let's look at uh, verse uh, 1 and 2 anyway. And Abraham was 90 years old and 9. The number 9 here. 99. Two nines in fact. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am El Shaddai, or the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, upright, sincere. I'm glad that the Lord prefaced that by saying, I am El Shaddai, the Schofield. He does have a good note on it. Schofield wasn't wrong altogether. Uh, he does have an excellent note on that. Uh, the Al Shaddai has the thought, I, I am the strong one, I am the breasted one, and walk before me and be thou perfect. In other words, God's giving him an impossible command to walk before him and be perfect and be upright and sincere. But uh, he prefaces it by saying, I am the strong one, the breasted one. And just as a little child walks before and draws nourishment and strength from the mother, so you draw your strength from me. Then you'll be able to walk before me and be perfect. Then I will make my covenant between me and thee and multiply thee exceedingly. We're going to come in this chapter to the covenant of circumcision. Now remember, he's already in covenant relationship. God is adding something. He's bringing in the seal of the covenant. Now he goes down to verse... Um, 9, and God said unto Abraham, Thou should keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money, or any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. All right, now, bringing this together, there's three things I want to pull together here. First of all, we have the right of circumcision and three things that I want you to see what happens, see what they point to. We have uh, the first thing that's involved in this right of circumcision is the cutting off of the flesh. Cutting off of the flesh. And this cutting of the flesh involves bloodshed. So please pick this up because of what we want to lead to. Flesh and blood, body and blood, cutting off of the flesh and blood, sacrifice involved. The second thing that's involved in the rite and the administration of the rite was this had to take place on the eighth day, not the seventh day. The eighth day, the morrow after the seventh day, the first day of the week. You see, God's got something in mind in this covenant of circumcision. Then the third thing that's involved is that uh, the child had to be named. The invocation of the name. Now remember, the child was given the name before birth, but the child was nameless for eight days. All the name was provided, but it had to be invoked. And it was invoked on the eighth day. Let's go over to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. I uh, hope the Holy Spirit applies some things to your heart that I don't always like to say, but I think that not wanting to be the Holy Ghost, I hope he gets at you. Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, 
and then chapter 2, and we'll see how in the New Testament these three things are sort of brought together in one verse. The uh, cutting off of the flesh and the blood, the rite itself, taking place on the eighth day, and the invocation of the child's name. The naming of the child, we would call it christening. Christening. Christian. Naming the baby. All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 59. This is concerning the birth of um, John the Baptist, born of Zacharias. And note the three things that are mentioned here. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they called him Zacharias after the name of the father, the name of his father. So we have in that verse... Circumcision, the right, the eighth day, the invocation of the name. Chapter 2 and verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21. And we have the same thing now in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the three things are mentioned here. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So the name was given before the birth. You get the implication there. The name is given before the birth, but the name was not invoked until eight days. So we have the three things here in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. The cutting off of the flesh, shedding of blood, circumcision, the right, and then the invocation on the eighth day and the invocation of the name. So... We see how uh, we've got enough scripture to confirm that. Now, what did this point to? The Old Testament rite, what did it point to? It pointed to two things particularly, or we'll condense it to two things. It pointed to two things. First of all, it points to something that happens in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it points to something that happens in the believer in the church. This is such a vast subject, but we'll... Okay, now, let's see what happens in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Genesis, uh, chapter 17 here. Uh, wait a minute, is it Genesis? Genesis, um, uh, Genesis 21. Genesis 21. And we'll take verses 1 through to 4. Genesis 21, verses 1 through to 4. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken, and Sarah for Sarah conceived, and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God commanded him. Now here we have the birth of an only begotten son, the Old Testament only begotten son, and the three things that are involved here, the uh, rite of circumcision, the, uh, the eighth day when the rite took place, and the invocation of the name. And as we've said previously, the Old Testament only begotten son Isaac points to Jesus the New Testament on a begotten Son. And so this is what we see happening. As I said, we're only picking up a couple of the main things here. In relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, at the cross, it happened at his baptism too, symbolically, but we'll have to skip that for now. But at the cross, this is what we see. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened? He was cut off out of the land of the living. Isaiah 58, 53 verse 8 says, uh, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. Uh, the cross became the knife. The cross became the instrument. As the knife and the instrument was used for the rite of circumcision, so the cross became the sword, the knife, 
the instrument for the cutting off of Jesus Christ, cutting off for our sins and our transgressions. And when he was cut off, there was the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvary was the place where we can say the truth of circumcision was fulfilled. Here was the right, here was the external right, but this is what it pointed to. So the cutting off of Jesus Christ on Calvary, broken body, shed blood. We have that there. Then the second thing is, or let's go to the, well, let me identify this with a theological word. Therefore, the cutting off of the flesh and the, and the shedding of blood here, this rite of circumcision, pointed to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, pointed to his death. Then the second thing, uh, this took place on the eighth day, and in relation to Calvary, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead the eighth day, not the seventh day. Not on the Sabbath, but the morrow after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. And so the eighth day points to his resurrection. So God had Calvary in mind when he gave Abraham the sign and seal of circumcision, the covenant of circumcision, and the three things involved. So the eighth day, resurrection. Jesus Christ was raised the eighth day, more after the, after the Sabbath, not on the seventh, seventh, but on the eighth day, the first day of the new week. Then we come to the third part, and I'd like you to turn over to a scripture where we see the fulfillment of this. Uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we'll take uh, verse 30, let's see, verse 30. Acts chapter 2, verse 30. Uh, speaking of David's prophetic word, Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades or hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now the thing that happens here is the invocation of the name of the child pointed to the invocation and the reception of the triune name in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. See, for 30 years Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth. When he received the Holy Spirit in the River Jordan, he became known as Jesus Christ, Jesus anointed, Jesus the Messiah. But never once in the Gospels is he ever called the Lord Jesus Christ. The revelation of the triune name is the first revelation of the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost. And so Peter says, under the initial Pentecostal sermon, the first revelation that the Holy Spirit gives to the church on the day of Pentecost is not speaking in tongues, but the revelation of the triune name to be used in baptism. And so he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly God has exalted this same Jesus, and he has made this same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. First declaration of the triune name. Now let's go over to Philippians Chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll take from verse 8, Philippians 2, verse 8, Philippians 2nd uh, chapter, verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, 
Wherefore, because of this and on the basis of all this, God has also has highly exalted him and given him a name, the exalted name, given him a name which is above every, every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. How many believe everyone's going to bow at the name of Jesus? No, you're wrong. How many? <laughs> right, you've been caught before. All right, let's read it properly. That at the name of Jesus, not saying at the name Jesus every knee should bow, let's read it first, see. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the exalted name. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand. And Jesus Christ is not made Lord until his exaltation. So when he ascended up on high, God the Father, who is Lord, the Father gave to his son his name, the same as my son is Mark Andrew Connor. My son bears his father's name. Every, say, every time you say Connor, you're either talking about the father or his son. But my son has his own personal name, Mark Andrew. The personal name of Jesus is Jesus. But when you say Lord Jesus, that's either the father's name directly or the father's name upon the son. See? And so when he ascended up on high, the Lord, the father said unto my Lord, the son, sit on my right hand. And God hath made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were thoroughly stabbed. That means, why? Because they knew what it was for the Father to give his name to somebody else. It was to make that somebody else co-equal, co-equal with him. So it's not at the name of Jesus every knee is going to bow. It's that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because that's the Father's name upon the Son. There's no greater name. And so, way back here in the right, cutting off of flesh, shedding of blood, pointed to the crucifixion where Jesus Christ was cut off at Calvary and his body was broken for us and his blood was shed. The fact that it took place on the eighth day pointed to the resurrection that was going to take place on the eighth day. And the fact that Isaac, the name was invoked, the invocation of the name took place on the eighth day pointed to the exaltation of Jesus Christ where he would receive the exalted name. Can you say hallelujah? Hallelujah. All right, now I want you to see what happens in relation to the believer. I want you to turn over to uh, Colossians, uh, Colossians here. Well, let's turn to, uh, how we would do this? Yes, yeah, I suppose that's all right. Uh, let's, uh, we'll change our mind, we'll come to Colossians in, in a moment. Let's go to the Romans passage first of all. Romans chapter 6. I recognize that uh, as we look at this passage in Romans 6 that some expositors say that this has nothing to do with water baptism. But I'm sure that uh, we'll be agreeable if we disagree with them. All right, Romans 6. Let's just read the, uh, word, uh, the first five verses here. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. All right, now let's see what happens here because in relation to the believer, 
Now we have the three things that happen. In relation to believer's baptism, when a, per when a believer is baptized, he is baptized into his death. It is identification with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In other words, our old life should be cut off. There should be a cutting off of the fleshly life, a cutting off of the old life. So that water baptism, otherwise, if it's not this, you see, if we don't have the inward experience of the outward rite of baptism, then we just go down a dry sinner and come up a wet one. All right? Because there's got to be that operation of the Spirit, see? So when we're water baptized and go under the water, we're going down into death. We're being identified with the death of Christ. We are being cut off from the old life. See? So that corresponds to that. So cutting off from the old life, the things I used to do, I do them no more. I've been cut off from that old life. The, the, uh, the, the sword of the cross, the knife, has uh, cut off that old fleshly life. I'm identified with the death of Christ. So here I have identification with his death. If I really have the truth of baptism and have an experience there. Identification with his death. And then the next word Paul uses, so that's, uh, if you mark your Bible, I suggest you circle three words in uh, Romans 6. In verse 3, circle the word death. In verse 4, circle the word buried. In verse 5, circle the word resurrection. And you've got death, burial, resurrection. That's the meaning of the thing. That's what we're being identified with. So know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ. We were baptized into his death. So going into the water is being identified symbolically into the death of Christ. And uh, verse 4, we are buried with him by baptism. So really water baptism, uh, when we go into the water, we're symbolically going into the water to death. When we are immersed under the water, you never bury anybody by sprinkling them. Uh, the city officials would get after you and say, well, we don't believe immersion is, uh, is uh, uh, water baptism is immersion. We believe baptism is by sprinkling. Well, you go and sprinkle the dead and say, you're buried. And uh, you won't get away with it, will you? You'll be held up a stench of the old man, won't you? So burial beneath the water into death, <laughs> burial. So immersion under the water is burial. But then what happens in verse 5, if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And you see, when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, now we're talking about the seal of God, see? Seal of God, water baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit is involved in being sealed. And you see, man, all we can do, man can bury in water. That's all any of us do when we baptize anybody over there. Uh, we bury you in the water. Funeral service, get rid of the old man, bury you there. Some of you, I think we ought to hold up, uh, hold under longer. Then you'd never backslide. You could go straight through the glory. <laughs> Stand before the gate and say, what were you doing? Well, the last thing I remember is Brother Connor was baptizing me in water. I think he held me under too long, so I'd never backslide. Well, come on in. <laughs> you made it. <laughs> It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? You'd be sure of your converts then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so burial in water now all we can do is bury in water no man can baptize in the Holy Ghost hey, nobody uh, if people say I'm going to give you the baptism nobody can do it they might shake your chin or pat you on the head give you a Pentecostal charismatic massage or something like that but nobody can baptize you with the Holy Ghost Jesus is the baptizer see 
And if a few uh, little charismatic Holy Ghost helpers of the Holy Ghost would remember that, then they'd leave some of the Pentecostal and charismatic massages to the doctors instead of trying to help the Holy Ghost out. So uh, we bury in water because all we can do is let the dead bury the dead. <laughs> I didn't know if that fitted there anyway, it sounded good. Well, we'll, we'll say that's application instead of interpretation. But it takes the Holy Ghost to raise from the dead. And see, as Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8, if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, he'll quicken your mortal bodies. So that's why in the Bible the pattern was, not today, we get so far away from it, but uh, we seem to hit it now and then. But the Bible way was water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism one baptism. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Which one? Water baptism, Holy Ghost baptism. Everybody argues over, well, one baptism is water baptism. Somebody else says one baptism is Holy Ghost baptism. In the, in the book of Acts, it was one baptism. They were baptized in water by man and baptized in the Holy Spirit by Jesus. That was one baptism. That's the Bible way. Does everybody believe this? You're looking funny there. Like a cow looking at a new gate, some of you. So uh, man baptizes in water, but Jesus baptizes in the Holy Ghost, and together that constitutes one baptism. So when we see them come up out of the water, uh, speaking in other tongues, then Jesus has raised them. Raised them to walk in newness of life. And so you see... In water baptism, we're identified with his death. In Holy Ghost baptism, we're identified with his resurrection. Okay? So uh, let's put this up here. WB, water baptism, and uh, Holy Spirit baptism here. So water baptism is uh, identification with his crucifixion, cutting off of the old life, the old man, the flesh life. Holy Ghost baptism is identification with his resurrection. Now, let's turn back to uh, Matthew chapter 20. 8, 19, and 20. Matthew chapter 28. And verse uh, uh, 18, or... Oh. Matthew 28, verse 18, we'll read, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in or into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even into the, unto the end of the world. Invocation of the name in baptism, the Godhead name, the triune name. And when we get to the book of Acts and the epistles, we have 14 references to baptism in the, in the book of Acts and the epistles. And practic practically every one of them show that baptism in the early church was into the triune name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 19 a point in uh, consideration. Acts 19. And we'll paraphrase a little bit here. Paul comes to uh, Ephesus, finds certain disciples, and uh, as he's ministering to them, he says, sensed uh, there was a little bit of deadness in the meeting and felt somebody was missing. So uh, he said, have you received the Holy Spirit since we believed, since you believed? And they said unto him, we haven't even heard as much whether there be any Holy Spirit or whether the Holy Spirit has been even poured out. And so the moment he uh, found out that they were not baptized in the Holy Spirit, he questioned their water baptism. See? The moment he found out they were not baptized in the Holy Spirit, he questioned their water baptism. 
And he said, Unto what then, or unto whom then were ye baptized? I said, John's baptism, very water that Jesus was baptized in. Then Paul said, Well, John's baptism is good enough for you. That'll be fine. No. He said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe, repentance and faith, on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ. When they heard this, they argued and said, nothing doing, we've been down the same water that John has and the same water that Jesus had. In fact, we kept some in a bottle. <laughs> Would you like to buy a bottle for two dollars? Put it in Bible Temple Missionary Department. Waters from the River Jordan from John's baptismal service. Come and get sprinkled. <laughs> when they heard this, they were baptized again. In the name. And some of the early manuscripts, which Dave Blomgren gave me a copy of some of the earlier things there, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't even say appropriate by faith. And to make it uh, matters worse, when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost got into the act. And they spake with tongues and prophesied. So the Holy Ghost seemed quite pleased about them being baptized in the triune name. I remember the name was given but was not invoked until then. And so here we have invocation of the name, exaltation of the name. I'd like you to go over to a couple of verses just before our time's up here. Let's go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And my whole purpose in the message tonight is get some of you under conviction. <laughs> if you haven't obeyed, and if you haven't got the seal and the sign, these signs shall follow them that believe. And as they received the seal, the sign followed. They spake with tongues after baptism. Okay, 1 Corinthians 1, very interesting uh, verses here and meaningless to our little Western mind here. Verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our denomination and our headquarters at Mecca and Jerusalem. <laughs> Does it say that? The light, the light is very bad up here. <laughs> I beseech you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no schisms or divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, and every church has their little house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. <laughs> now this I say, that every one of you that says, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ, is Christ divided? One translation says, Do you tear Christ to pieces? Was Paul crucified for you? Who was crucified for them? Okay, who? Let's say verse 10, the answer's there. The Lord Jesus Christ. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, that's a silly question to ask. If they'd been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, if somebody had just quoted the command over them. And you know that you never fulfill a command by quoting it. He said, baptize into the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. He didn't say, quote the command, I baptize in the name of the Father, Son of the Holy Ghost. He said, baptize him into the name. Well, that's why when we baptize here, we quote the command of Jesus and invoke the name in the book of Acts. So we say, we baptize you into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we quote the commandment of Jesus, but we obey it by invoking the name.
Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified for them. And who were we baptized into? Whose death are we baptized into? We are buried with him in baptism. Baptized into the death of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Or baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? So if we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, what more suitable name and scriptural name should be invoked upon us? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, have you got that seal upon you tonight? Have you got the seal of the covenant? Let me finish with this. Our time's up. Uh, we'll finish with this scripture. Exodus chapter 4, then we're through. Exodus chapter 4 is a quite a frightening little section here. But how many know that God likes to frighten you into obedience now and then? How many know I like to do that? <laughs> Exodus chapter 4, we'll finish on this, uh, verse 24 to 26. And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to kill him. Now Moses has just had a revelation of the name of God. He just had a revelation of the burning bush. He's just been playing around with rods turning to snakes and putting his hand into his bosom and coming out leprosy and that gets healed and water turned to blood. He just have a signs-following ministry. And now he's on the way to deliver the people of God and now he's just at the inn there and God sought to kill him. Why? Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of his son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a husband of blood art thou to me? So he let him go. God let him go. And she said, a husband of blood thou art because of the circumcision. Now you see, the point here is that God had appeared to Moses and he was going to deliver his people Israel on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. How could Moses go down and deliver the people on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant when his own family were not in covenantal relationship with God? So God sought to kill him. And how can we bring deliverance to others on the basis of the covenant unless we have the seal of that covenant? No one, as I said, was entitled to the privileges, the promises and the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant without that seal. So I believe that's why God is challenging his church today. Get the seal of God. Get the seal of God, the full seal. Can you say amen? Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books, and his ministry.